You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, would you call UFC 247 prominent, newsworthy, or hilarious? Can it be all three? I guess. I mean, it can be more than one thing. Yeah, it depends where you're standing when you look at it, I suppose. I mean, I think one day we'll all look back and laugh. That day might be today. <laughs> a lot of uh, big-time happenings over the weekend down there at Toyota Center in Houston for UFC 247. We will be breaking down a lot of that stuff on this week's show. Before we get into it, though, got to remind you dudes, please go out and review The Blaze, my novel. It's a mystery. It's a thriller. It's out in bookstores now. You can get it wherever you get your books. If you read it, and I hope you enjoy it, please go out and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Uh, those reviews help the book, so do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. I would appreciate it. You can also run out and grab yourself some CME logo t-shirts right now over at CottonBureau.com. We got those for sale. We got Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts for sale. We got Dundasso t-shirts for sale. I feel like I'm a damn carny over here. You where you are. Let's be honest, we you got are. them Dundasso shirts. Best case scenario, you're a carny. Best case scenario. They're always available on demand all the time, whenever you want them. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash the fifth element official. And as you guys know, that's the word the with an A, the fifth element. Fifth element retweeted one of my tweets over the weekend. Oh, nice. Which one? Can't remember which one off the top of my head. Must have been really good. I think it was the one about the uh, the judges after we had four split decisions on the, uh, the preliminary and undercard portion of UFC 247 when I was like, uh, feel real good about these judges, maybe scoring a very close five-round John Jones fight later. Well, oddly prescient. That one aged well, I have I, to say. I gotta tell you, when you mentioned trying to get people to review The Blaze for you, it reminded me how I read this weekend about uh, Jenny Offill, who, I don't know if you read her last novel, Department of Speculation. I've I heard of it. My wife read it. I did not read it's it It's fantastic. Myself. You should definitely read it. It was one of the best books of the last ten years that I read. And then I saw that she has a new one coming out, and I was like, oh, when does it come out? Like, tomorrow. It drops tomorrow. And I'm like, man, she didn't even give me a six-month warning to pre-order this shit? What? She really, she needs a podcast. Maybe she doesn't have to worry about pre-orders anymore. See, that's just, though, that's getting complacent. You gotta stay on top of that. She needs a special interest podcast about a very niche subject in which she reminds people several times a week to pre-order her book. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, I mean, we were just kind of joking about the whole Dominic Reyes era thing last week, but in retrospect, we're here to soak up all the adulation and praise as a couple of fucking Nostradamuses of this MMA shit. Basically, yeah. And in round number two, judging, man. Why they do that? 
And in round number three, Valentina Shevchenko may well be the perfect MMA fighter. And right now, in the women's flyweight division, maybe that's part of the problem. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. See, we got to get to this shit early today because we got a lot of stuff to talk about. A lot of people have stuff on their minds, understandably so. All kinds of stuff happening. This first bit of listener mail comes to us from David Duncan Danielson and he writes AKA Triple D. Well, yeah. If you got that name, if you're working with that for real, then you got to go Triple D. Guys, are we more or less excited for Corey Anderson versus Jan Blagovitz this weekend after the Jones-Reyes fiasco? More excited? Because holy shit, maybe some of these new light heavyweight contenders actually have a chance against an aging, less motivated, less awesome Jones? Or less excited? Because now we're obviously going to be stuck in a Jones-Reyes rematch cycle for a while. Uh, that's a fair point. Because just like we talked about in other divisions... Heavyweight being one, it makes it difficult to get excited about the contender fights when you're like, it seems like the title situation is tied up for a little bit into the future. I don't know, this one, it didn't seem coming out of this like it was super obvious exactly what we we're going to do next. I'm sure we'll end up talking about this more when we get to the actual meat and potatoes of this week's show, but if you tell me we're booking John Jones, Dominic Reyes' immediate rematch, I'm not the least bit upset about that. But if you do tell me, like, uh, maybe it depends a little bit how this goes. If somebody comes out of this looking like a damn up-and-coming world beater, either Corey Anderson or Jan Blachowicz, like either one, they get they bring different things to the table. But if one of them scores a really impressive finish and then gets on the mic and is like, John Jones didn't look so great to me against Dominic Reyes, and I got next, I don't know. I, I mean, I could maybe be talked into it. Yeah, it would take some uh, supple mic work, let's say. Well, you saw Corey Anderson. He's been willing to step up and be a little bit more vocal. He's been turning up the volume a little bit, yeah. so to speak. This one, UFC Fight Night, what number we got here? Uh, 167 going down uh, at Santa Ana Star Center in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. Granddaddy of them all. Now, you know who lives in New Mexico? John Jones. Think he's going to show his face at this? He's got some teammates on the card, right? He should show up with a whiteboard. That says like uh, Tiago Santos crossed off Dominic Reyes, and then when they when they uh, pan the camera over to him, he he takes out a dry erase marker and he crosses off Dominic Reyes. Really, whiteboard is how you want him to do that. Well, what do you what do you think he should do? That just take seems, it to notes. He you can hold up his phone, the, put it right in the camera. <laughs> the problem is, if you go whiteboard, I'm gonna do a Dominic Reyes and just tomahawk your hand out of my face like John, like he did to John Jones. If you go whiteboard, you bring a whiteboard to the event, you know that by the time you hold it up for the camera, there are several smudges already. Like several things. It's going to be unreadable. You think maybe poster board. Something that feels a little bit more permanent. I don't know. Let's... Remember how you said that Kamara Usman and Jorge Masvidal getting into it at Super Bowl Media Day was a nice idea? Yeah. I'm going to say that I think that your idea here is it's a nice idea. I'm concerned about some of the practicalities. I think you're being a little bit too critical. I think the whiteboard is still the most expeditious and effective way to send this message <laughs> well, I didn't to the ex- folks watching at home. Didn't expect this to be 10 minutes in and you were all in on whiteboard. But <laughs> I'm going to say a little bit less excited because... Well, what was your excitement level before, though? Four. Okay. Now it's probably a three and a half. I just don't feel like it's a huge drop-off from wherever we were before for a fight night event headlined by Corey Anderson versus Jan Blachowicz. Yeah, I don't want to give away the store here either. So I guess a lot of how we answer this question depends on uh, 
whether or not we think they're going to do the rematch, whether a John Jones, Dominic Reyes rematches in the offing. So uh, maybe we can circle back to this as we move on a little bit through the rest of today's co-main event podcast. Second uh, piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Stephanie Howell, who writes, John Jones has gone to decision in seven of his last eight official fights. I'm sure his competition is getting better, but is he slowing down? Gun to your head, does 2020 Jones beat all the other years? And if not, which Jones would you pick to win an all Jones tournament? So, well, well, wait a minute. All jo- so, yeah, she's asking us if okay. we think the current version of light heavyweight champion John Jones, the uh, 32-year-old version, about to turn 33 this summer, would beat earlier... Uh, incarnations of john jones i'm gonna say no actually maybe, maybe even picogram john jones oh hey come on now. John jones. doesn't seem fair well you were thinking it i was not thinking it yes you were you should have been i mean this version definitely beats like 2009 2010 john jones yeah but what about john jones what about 2011 john jones when he's out here beating ryan bader shogun hua rampage jackson leoto machida then shows up april 2012 beats rashad evans uh then beats vitor belfort then beats chael sonnen I mean, we're going through no, a couple of years here. But. I think this John Jones beats those John Joneses. I you think, think maybe, so? I think the if there's a John Jones in the John Jones in the tournament of John Joneses, a night of John Joneses. Well, I assume we're doing this as a single night tournament. A night of Jones. Yeah. Uh, if there's one guy in there who I pick to be the number one seed, it's 2017 John Jones when he uh, beat Daniel Cormier in the fight that was later overturned as no contest. That, I think, was right there. And then, you know, the following year beats Alexander Gustafson. But I don't know. I feel like that's around the peak of John Jones. I I understand now that it's kind of a fashionable topic after two, especially the close decision wins for John Jones that were at least debatable, to be like, is John Jones washed up? Is it, is well, it are people catching up? Ridiculous. Well, washed people are saying, like, up. past his prime. Like, is he, like, did he crest a hill and now he's starting to come down the other side? At least people are wondering that. And I think uh, it's impossible for me to look at a guy who is still as good at fighting as he is and say, like, he's past anything. But I do think, I think there's some logic to the theory that Joe Rogan and Dominic Cruz put forth that people have seen so much of John Jones at this point yeah. that it's a little easier to craft a game plan. I think he also makes it a little easier because he is not as unpredictable as he used to be. That used to be one of his strengths, right? And it used to be one of the things people really enjoyed about watching him was, you didn't know what the hell this guy's going to do. He's going to go out there and throw a bunch of flying knees and spinning elbows and like just making up techniques. Yeah. And he doesn't really do that anymore. He has really zeroed in on what his game is and how he can minimize risk to himself. And I think that... That combination of factors, where and also just other people are getting better, like the light heavyweights that are coming up now who who really showed themselves to be the cream of the crop are better than the light heavyweights who was like an aging Shogun Hua, an aging Rampage Jackson, people like that who he came up and, and put away. I think all that combination of factors is making these fights more competitive. Plus, I just think that to an extent, maybe he has become so risk-averse just because he's like, look... I know if I do these things over the course of five rounds, I'm going to get you. Yeah. See, that's what I think it is. I don't think, I wouldn't say at all that he is like washed up or over the hill, but I think that like 2011 John Jones, who's going to go out there like a shit-eating wild man, he will have taped off John Jones's uh, physical 
dimensions on the yes, wall yes, of his apartment yeah. at home, uh-huh. and he will have been staring at it for a month. He's probably hungrier than the John Jones. He's going to go out there, balls to the wall. Let's say Dominic Reyes style, and uh, he's going to blitz this new risk averse John Jones, and okay. he's going to win either uh, by a second round stoppage or a, of a, uh, a decision. But here's a factor you're not thinking of: the the John Jones of the present, 2020 John Jones. He has knowledge of all past John Joneses, whereas the John Jones of 2011 does not have knowledge of 2020 John Jones. That's true. So that would help him with the game planning. He might be sitting there being like, man, 2011, let's see. I remember I had a thing going on with my ribs there for a while, so I'm going to target those ribs. Or he might just be like whispering weird shit in the clinch where he's like, oh, God, John, this John Jones knows my immediate future. You don't know. I mean, there's just a well, lot wait, of... Though, does 2011 John Jones get to watch film all the way up to 2020 John Jones? Or is it like, we're plucking this guy straight out of 2011? Plucking him straight out. He still thinks Barack Obama is president. Yep. Uh-huh. He's secure in where the world is headed. Yeah. He's like, I trust Facebook with my data. Yeah. All right. Well, if that's the case, then I like 2020 John Jones. Yeah. I mean, well, he's seen some shit. It's grizzled. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington, who writes... Comparing to Jones Reyes, what do you guys remember about the opinions and general energy surrounding GSP's title defense against Johnny Hendricks? In my recollection, that fight was almost exactly as close. It just seems to me that GSP gets more benefit of the doubt with fans, given the staggering difference in likability versus Jones. At least this time, Dana didn't try to summon the goddamn governor. Uh, now, see, like I think this is a, I think this is a good point, and although. I think with that, everyone on the Co-Main Event podcast can agree we, we thought Dominic Reyes was probably going to win this decision, uh, 48-47, or maybe that we thought he deserved to win this decision. I actually went on a real emotional roller coaster ride during just the announcement of this decision. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But like, I do think that, John, that people are kind of hanging out online, very online, waiting for John Jones to lose so that they can laugh and point. Yeah. And I think that John Jones's general... Uh, dislikability, especially among hardcore MMA fans, adds to the like the sense around the the Jones Reyes fight that it was a robbery. Yeah, I though I do remember there being some immediate sentiment after that Johnny Hendricks GSP fight where people were like GSP lost that fight. Yeah, for sure. And it wasn't. You're right though. It wasn't quite as gleeful where people really wanted, or at least as many people, as many vocal people wanted. GSP to lose, yeah. but just thought that he had. And also, like, several different differences. For one thing, GSP always wore damage on his face. Yeah, uh, he was lot. sitting there with like, that ice pack on his head he at always, the fight press conference. Even in fights that he won, he would show up looking like he'd been hit by a truck. And so, and John Jones doesn't do that. John Jones, even, he was getting hit with some hard shots, and it was like the most you see is, like, a little blood out of his nose. Like, he, and he, he really no-sells a, a good, clean shot pretty well. So... There's that difference. Also, GSP, you want to talk about an emotional roller coaster because he goes from that being in that tough fight, people are going, Holy shit, GSP might lose this fight. He wins the decision, people are a little bit shocked. And then in the aftermath, right after that, he's talking about stepping away from the sport, and people are going, Whoa, like really just reeling. And I think maybe when he gave them that also to deal with, like, Hey, I, you might not see me again for a while, perhaps ever, then. He, it's a little bit harder to be really tough on the guy and be like, oh, he, he got gifted a decision here because people are also reckoning with the possibility that that might be it. We might never see him again. 
So what you're saying is John Jones ought to be out here being like, you know what, guys? I think that's it for me. I think I'm walking away, finally going to own that coin-op car wash that I've been dreaming yep. of this whole time. I'm going to be my own boss. I've always dreamed of that. <laughs> you know what I think might be one of the tests? And this is going to be disappointing because we're not going to be able to know right away. But it seems like if you talk about GSP's career today, nobody is like, oh, yeah, but remember the Johnny Hendricks fight? True. Everybody is like, oh, man, remember when he came back and beat Michael Bisping and became the middleweight champ, too? That was amazing. Yeah. So, like, in a couple years, if people are still grumbling about Dominic Reyes, okay, as but it pertains to, like, the career of John Jones, I think then we'll know there's just some sour grapes happening. As long as we're engaging in some speculative fictions. Also, 2023, John Jones beats everybody. <laughs> Let me just throw in an extra little twist and be like, what if Johnny Hendricks had gone on to be one of the great welterweights? Okay. Yeah, there's that's that that would have helped. The fact that Johnny <laughs> yes. Hendricks uh, basically beat George St. Pierre as the wily e. coyote running his legs out over the cliff <laughs> and he just hadn't realized he was going to fall yet. And and he's then, holding up the sign that says yikes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. See, that I think definitely affects the way people look back on that. So like if Dominic Ray is like if he comes back later, like wins, actually, like they do a rematch, he wins it, and then he reels off five or six more, like that'll be different. Uh, if he just completely falls off, then yeah, people will look back on this in a totally different light. Next question is, so we comes to us from Nick Jolly, who writes, recently, you've talked about the pay-per-view cards being weak below the title fights, which hopefully not, might be a model UFC management is following similar to boxing. This weekend, there is a card headlined by Blockovitz and Anderson, whilst... Whilst we dropped a whilst yep. in here. Uh -huh. Whilst the following week, Dan Hooker fights Paul Felder. On the undercard this week are a, are familiar names like Diego Sanchez, Lando Venata, uh, and Yancey Medeiros. While in Auckland, you've got, whilst in Auckland, whilst yeah, whilst in Auckland, you've got a watchable group of local fighters with some foreigners added. Like this is he wrote this just so I would have to just say these nothing names. Nothing but confidence in these names. Yeah, Mustafev. Alexi look it up yourselves, Zuberia, people. Look it up yourselves if you want to see Tukogov, this undercard. And, oh, Karolina Kovalkevich. There you go. I can do that one. Uh, unless we want to say Kovalkevich. Some people say that name different. Listen, it just if we get through it at all, be glad. Kovalkevich, and then a name that I'm not even going to try. Uh, personally, I'm more excited for these cards than the whole prelims undercards from the last two UFC pay-per-views. Assume this is being done on purpose. Who are the winners and losers of this policy, and does this represent the new normal moving forward? Uh, I think it could be that we're moving the goalposts in terms of the standards that we expect. Okay. Like for these two fight yeah. nights, it's okay, right, to, uh, to have these cards... Uh, where you get Jan Blagovitz and Corey Anderson in the main, Diego Sanchez versus Michelle Pereira as the co-main this weekend in New Mexico. And then, you know, having people on this card like Tim Means, John Dodson, Jim Miller versus Hot Sauce Holtzman is a good one. Uh, that's okay for a fight night. Lando Venata, as we said, uh, Ray Borg also on this card. We look at that and we think, oh, hell yeah. You know, I'm already paying for ESPN+. Plus. This right. seems like a good way to spend my Saturday night if I don't have anything going on. I think you could say the same thing. Uh, to a lesser extent about uh, Paul Felder and Dan Hooker down there in Auckland. Uh, that That's a little bit more of a lackluster card, although your guy Tyson Nam is on there. Uh, but we expect more from a pay-per-view event. Well, we are paying more for it. Exactly. So, like, considerably more. We have good reason to expect more. Yeah. But, I don't, so, if the working theory here is that the UFC has decided, okay, here's what we're going to do for pay-per-views. One good fight at the top, maybe two, maybe like one and a half good fights, and then filler, and 
we'll get you to buy it just based on the very top. And then we'll shift some fights that would be pretty good undercard fights for a pay-per-view. Instead, we'll shift those to ESPN Plus Fight Nights. That's what we're, we're assuming is going on? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the basis of the email. To me, it seems far more... I don't know if random is the right word, but like to me, it seems that the UFC is clearly just a slave to the schedule. Yes, see, that's what I'm saying. Is like I don't think it's premeditated. Right. Like, I There's think, just so many damn events that they're right. like, it's literally who you got. Yes. Yeah. I think that it's if it's spread thin, it's because of the number of events you set for yourself and that you just don't have enough. Right. To you fill can't. All that. You can't put Corey Anderson and Jan Blachowicz on UFC 247 because they got to be the main event next week. Right. Whereas but if you, could, you know, five ten years ago. That would have absolutely been on. And it would have made a hell of a lot of sense to put it on UFC 247 yeah. since you're talking about a potential number one contender fight. Plus, it would give you a backup in case somebody gets hurt. So, yeah, that would have made a ton of sense to do that. But you're right. You can't do it because you got other stuff that you got to, uh, like, fill on the calendar. Uh, but I don't – I mean, especially when I – the thing that gets me more generous in mood toward these fight night cards is that they're on ESPN+. Plus, which, like you said – you already got to pay for if you want to be a person who follows the UFC in the year 2020. It's not that expensive. They have a lot of other good stuff. I end up watching a lot of hockey games, occasionally some soccer games, stuff on there. So it's like, it's a, honestly a good deal to have ESPN+. And then if you're essentially giving me the same quality that you were giving me on Fox Sports 1 back in that deal. Except when it's on ESPN+, the shit moves a whole lot faster. You don't, you don't drag it out painfully into the wee hours the way they'd always would with Fox Sports. So if you give me the same quality cards for a thing I'm going to pay for anyway, and the pacing is better, then I consider that like my life has improved. Yeah. I think all of those things are true. And I will also say that it is somewhat interesting how I feel like psychologically they've hoodwinked me a little bit where <laughs> I'm literally looking at these cards being like, well, you know, I'm paying for this shit anyway. Yeah. Like, that's a positive about the fight card. Would you describe the yourself... The fact that they are charging me extra money that they didn't use to charge me. Now I'm looking <laughs> at Blakovitz versus Anderson being like, shit, man, I'm paying for this anyway. This seems great. Yeah, but it did allow me to pare down my cable packages. I don't need fucking Fox Sports 2 anymore. That's true. That's uh, true. Would you describe yourself as mentally bamboozled? Yeah, at this point I would. Mentally bamboozled. Perhaps led down a garden path, psychologically Skipping. Speaking. Skipping down a garden path. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Stacy Jones, who writes, What's the Tarinabal sitch? Okay. What's my John Jones drug testing? Where's my John Jones drug testing results story? Tweets, media day questions. I don't remember seeing anything or hearing anything before this fight, since I actually understand the role of media, unlike the idiots booing the journalist who asked about McGregor's rape charge at the press conference. Shouldn't this be one of the main storylines every time John Jones fights? Parenthetically, she says it should, I guess he or she, uh, media should be asking Jones about it. Every time he's in front of a mic, uh, they should be asking the bald USADA prick. I believe that's a reference to, uh, <laughs> Jeff Nowitzki, Jeff Nowitzki. And didn't, uh, and then in Phil Baroni called him that, yeah. right? Well, then see, it says parenthetically, yes. Unlike the poet, I realize he doesn't work for USADA. They should be asking Dana parenthetically the other bald prick this is a salty question yeah. about it every time he's in front of a mic until his whole head turns red <laughs> and explodes if necessary they should be constantly calling usada and asking them about it every mma website should be running an updated story about the picogram pulsing situation before every fight and update it again when the post-fight tests come back why isn't this happening discourse well i did see some stuff about 
drug tests with, for John Jones before this. It, but instead, it was just stuff along the lines of, here's how much John Jones has been drug tested. It seemed that Jeff Nowitzki went out there and did a little positive PR for John, John Jones talking Most about... Most tested athlete in sports, 40 tests last year alone. Yeah, and then, but also it seemed like John Jones's comments about, like, here's how many tested, times I've been tested by USADA maybe did not totally factually add up to the public record that USADA has of how many tests they've... But, I mean, tests for USADA, tests for athletic commissions, all that kind of stuff. So I did see stuff about it in the news. I guess the argument against just trying to make it a story every time is, what's the new information? Because I... I understand the underlying logic, which is if you told us before that it was okay for this stuff to keep showing up in drug tests because you had determined it was not a new ingestion and that it was just going to be this pulsing effect that for all you knew could happen for years and years and years and then it suddenly stopped happening. It's not showing up on the tests anymore. It is a reasonable question to ask why. But it also seems like the way they originally phrased it was like, we don't actually know. Right. And so if you ask them that, they're like, hey, why isn't it pulsing anymore? Well, they didn't know why it was pulsing before. So maybe they they could just as easily argue that they don't know why it's not right now. Yeah. And I think, again, like you said, we asked all these questions and we've heard the UFC's explanation. And that explanation is not going to change. They have explained the science around it to their... uh, to their liking, I guess, to their, they are satisfied. The UFC is satisfied with the science around it and continuing to ask them about it. Well, I'm not necessarily against it. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily pushes the story forward at all, unless we can find some answers about whether or not or why the picograms would continue to pulse or not. And so like, it really comes down to whether or not the, the fan, the reader, Stacy Jones is, Buys that explanation. Yeah. I think we all have to make that decision of our own minds and figure out kind of how we feel about the situation. And John Jones never was able to say how that Tarina ball got in his body, which is one of the things that separates his case from some other quote unquote tainted supplement cases where they have found the source of the, of the uh, banned sub- substance. But at the same time, he was testing at such a low level of Tarina ball that, you know, my understanding talking from people outside the UFC is that it absolutely could have happened through some manner of contamination. Uh, so whether or not you buy that, obviously, is up to you as the person. And yeah, while I think that it could be a viable news story, I'm kind of not hanging on it anymore. Like, I'm not... I know what everyone's going to say, so... I guess I'm not, I didn't necessarily find myself pining for a Tarina ball story leading up to UFC 247. Yeah, I, I can't say that I felt like that was what was missing in my life, just personally. Yeah, I mean, if there was a story like John Jones pulsed at 15 picograms of Tarina ball before this fight. Not 15! But he's still going to fight, and we're still saying the same stuff about why we think that happened, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't know, I don't necessarily know that that pushes the story forward. Anymore, unless you can, huh? unless you can get some uh, some additional people to go on the record about whether or not they think that's a real thing. True, bald Usada prick, maybe let's call him up. Fifteen picograms would not be very much. Grain of sand in the ocean. Scientist Chad Dundas. David Lauderay writes: Can you guys explain how athletic commissions work? Um, 
Then he goes on, as in, why do we actually need them? <laughs> Reason I ask is MMA judging is atrocious, and it seems like everyone just throws their hands up like, well, shit, af- athletic commission's going to hire shitty judges, not much we can do. What makes MMA different than, say, the NBA? I can't imagine the NBA being like, well, shit, refs in New York just give LeBron four points for a dunk instead of two, nothing we can do. Uh, elucidate, please. Okay, I hate the state athletic commission system of regulating the sport just in all ways because as we talked about before it just the quality of oversight you get varies so much from one commission to the next and some of that is just due to a difference in resources that some states see more mixed martial arts events or more just like combat sports events than other states so they get more practice regulating them they get more money devoted to the regulation of them so they have more resources and personnel and experience and all the things but then other states, they don't really have a good excuse for why they're not better at it, and yet they just suck, and they've always sucked, and they don't care that they suck, and they will continue to suck. And Texas is one of those. And it's just like, there just seems to be a large-scale bureaucratic indifference to it when it comes to Texas. And they, they're they just like, hey, this is, this is how we do it. The people are still going to keep bringing events here because it's a big state with a big population, and they want the money. So we're not that worried about it, and we also don't feel like there's any real need to get better. And to have to adjust to all these different, especially just like the joke of the unified rules that we see. Where every time, like the unified rules, Chad, mm-hmm. unified is in the damn name. Yeah. And yet every time we have to go, like before an event, and explain which of the unified rules will be in effect tonight. Like shit like that. Like it's a ridiculous way to regulate a sport. It's ridiculous. Like. The example of any other sport where you're like, okay, well, this one's being played in Pittsburgh. They they got a different set of rules in Pittsburgh, and uh, some of their referees uh, haven't refed a football game in three years, and uh, they weren't that good at it then. So, but hey, that's how they do it in Pittsburgh, and we just all have to deal with it. Like it's a shitty way to do it. Yeah, but like, what's the alternative? Is there a better alternative? In a perfect world, state athletic commissions are there to provide a layer of regulation and checks and balances above and beyond what promoters are legally obligated to do. And like most of that regulation and safety, uh, like checks and balances are necessary for promoters that are not on the level of the UFC. Like the UFC is a total anomaly in many ways in the world of the combat sports promoter. Uh, and I know that like state athletic commissions don't always really function that way. They don't always function the way they're supposed to function in a perfect world. And a big part of that reason is money and resources like not many state athletic commissions are all that well funded. I don't even think in Vegas where it's probably the best funded, most powerful state athletic commission in the nation are the commissioners on the commission full time. I don't think they are. I think it's a part-time job. Maybe the, like uh, the executive director yeah, is probably should. a full-time job, but like all of the other people who show up uh, at the committee meetings that we see whenever Nate Diaz tests positive for weed and we all, <laughs> crowd around the computers to watch the boring-ass live stream. Like, I don't think those people are full-time. And they certainly are not full-time in other states. So, like, you're dealing with... And again, the UFC is a complete anomaly, but, like, the UFC is a fight-promoting organization that has more money and more political power and more ability than any state athletic commission. But that's not the case, like, at the independent MMA level. I remember when I was talking to Bernie Profato, 
the head of the Ohio State Athletic Commission for a story about uh, independent MMA promoters. He was president of the ABC for a while, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Uh, he's been at it a long damn time. Also a colorful gentleman to call <laughs> up on the phone. He loves to talk. I like Bernie. Uh, he he basically told me like 90% of the people who call up my office wanting to be MMA promoters never call back when I send them the like the application, basically. Because it's like a 20-page thing where it lays out all of the safety requirements and all the stuff you have to do and the license fees and the stuff that you, the hoops that you have to jump through. Basically, uh, the Athletic Commission at that point provides a barrier of entry between people who are going to do it in a safe and professional manner and people who don't. And that's why the Athletic Commission is there in a perfect world. I know it doesn't always work that way. And like obviously the system is flawed in many ways, particularly at the highest level where oftentimes it seems that the athletic commission is there to make sure that the fights happen. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, like what's the alternative? I don't think you can just turn it over to the promoters. And no, like, well, you could have you a national body, like one national, like the uh, United States Mixed Martial Arts Federation. Yeah, all right. I Call mean, the that, president what, and tell him to put that in his budget. That's what we want to see all these other st- all countries do. Like when they start putting together stuff, it's like we're... We look at them and go, all right, where's your national MMA federation, France? You want to have this stuff. And yet when it comes to the United States, we do this weird patchwork system with state athletic commissions. The other thing I don't like about it, you mentioned how at times it seems like the purpose of the athletic commissions is to keep the fights intact and keep things going on. That's a problem that a lot of them, they rely on being able to have these events to keep the shit funded. And they're kind of essentially in competition with one another to attract these events. And as the promoter is in a situation where they can be like, hey, look, you don't want to license this bout, we'll take it somewhere else. You know, we can do that. That's no problem, especially a promoter that's as big as the UFC. And when you set them against each other that way, then their incentives are completely off. Like their incentives are not in terms of like just maintaining the strictest possible oversight. Their incentives are making sure we keep this money flowing and keep everybody happy and everybody stays friends. And that's just one of several reasons why it doesn't work as a system. Also, like, if you look at the way... I know we're going to end up talking about judging a lot, but you look at the way California does it. Like, California actually will go through and examine the work of their own judges. And if you're the outlier in a bunch of fights, they'll ask you why, and they will... uh, look at your historic performance and decide if they want to keep using you. And all of these other states are just like, hey, we have a list of guys. And when the shit comes to town, we look at the list. And we st- and as soon as we hit the number of people we need after calling up people who are on our guys list, we stop. Yeah. And you know what the question is probably? What you doing Saturday night? Yeah. Are you free? Uh-huh. Will you come down and wanna, sit here for seven hours? Want to make 75 bucks or whatever it is? But you know what uh, California probably has that a lot of other states don't have? Money. True. California State Athletic Commission probably better funded than a lot of state athletic commissions. Yes. For example, the state of Montana, which doesn't even have a damn state athletic commission. Functionally does not have. And you got a better chance of seeing God than convincing the weird Montana state legislature of being like, hey, give a bunch of money to start a state athletic commission. You can't even convince the Montana legislature to meet every year. So that's that. Give money for the roads. Can't convince them to do that. 
Anyway, that's going to do it for uh, listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, and concern to air for, to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny, and if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number one. Ben, you've watched the UFC 247 main event a couple of times now, correct? I have. I guess if we're going to give Dominic Reyes credit for one thing on the way into this round, where I suspect we will give Dominic Reyes credit for a bunch of things, let's start here. When this dude said that some people beat themselves against John Jones before they even come in the cage, and that Dominic Reyes, elite athlete, was not going to fall for that, he was going to come out there, go right at John Jones, and stay in his face the whole time. He wasn't lying. No, he was not. He came out there and Conor McGregor style threw that left hand, got all up in John Jones's shit from the beginning. Yep. And for the most part, obviously tailed off a little bit there in the final 10 minutes, but good to his word. He was going to be out there right in the big guy's face. Walked directly across the cage. Tried to punch John Jones in the face like he didn't even know that it was John Jones. Regardless of the outcome of this thing or what you think about the decision, maybe the the number one thing that we learned is that Dominic Reyes is fucking legit. He's a man of his word. He also, I think you could see kind of a moment there towards the end of the first round and getting ready to start the second round where there was a look on John Jones's face like, okay. This is a little bit more work than I thought it was going to be. Like, this is not exactly what I thought was going to have happen. Like, you come out there, get dropped in the first round, have this guy all over you. Like, John Jones was, a couple points in this fight, legitimately kind of on the run. And to his credit, John Jones, I think, does not get enough credit for what he does defensively in fights. And you saw it in a lot yeah. of this time, where he's a tough guy to hit. And even if you do hit him, he's a tough guy to hit really cleanly. Yeah. And... A lot of these exchanges where Dominic Reyes is really coming on hard against him, and Jones is evading a lot of those punches, and then a couple of them will get through. Yeah. And yet, there were points where you could definitely see where he was just kind of like, man, I wish this guy would back up off me for a second. Yeah. And yet, it seemed to cost Dominic Reyes a lot of energy to fight that way. The first and the second round, he was just outwork rating John Jones, but having to do a lot just to do it. Like John Jones is, is I think we saw it in the Tiago Santos fight and you saw it here. He's really good at efficiently using his energy over a five yeah. round. And some of that is just experience that he has fought a lot of five round fights at this point. Reyes is his first one and he knows how to parcel out that energy. But Reyes was, at, it seemed like, Take him three steps for every step John Jones had to take yeah. in those first couple rounds. And by the third round, you could see it kind of starting to take its toll where he's starting to slow down. And that pressure, you could hear John Jones' corner telling him, like, hey, the pressure is getting to him. And it was because he just, 
He knew, I can't just stand there and let John Jones come straight in at me. He's trying to circle off uh, all the time and then try to hit you with something when he does get in. But he was having to work so hard just to keep doing that, and he couldn't keep doing it forever. Yeah, and as much as maybe people have been critical of John Jones's performance, and we talked earlier in the show about whether or not uh, 32-year-old John Jones would beat a younger version of John Jones. Like, I honestly think both guys fought their asses off in yeah. this fight. Like, that was one of the things that I thought that made this a great fight, was that both guys kind of did awesome at the stuff that they were trying to do. And, like, you mentioned Dominic Reyes fading down the stretch, and clearly you got to give John Jones a lot of credit for that. I think that it's almost impossible for a light heavyweight to fight at the pace that you need to fight to cause John Jones those kind of problems. And yet Dominic Reyes, even though he was tired in the last two rounds, he was definitely still there and he was still dangerous and he was still doing it. It's just that one of the things that I think he had to do to keep John Jones out of his game was have that lateral movement. Like the way that he was moving, especially through the first 15 minutes of this fight really stopped John Jones from getting into that kind of like suffocating rhythm that he can get into where he's poking your knee with his damn huge foot and like he's kicking you in the face every now and then, kicking you in the body, pushing you away, like punching you. Uh, he gets into like he's very analytical. And when he once he takes stock of like what you're doing, he's one of these guys who's so good and has been in there so much that he just kind of starts picking you apart. And through the first, let's say, half of this fight, he couldn't really do that against Dominic Reyes just because, number one, Reyes was putting it in his face every two seconds. And the way he was moving didn't really allow John Jones to get off with his, like, uh, not necessarily fight-ending shots, but the stuff that he does that just throws his opponent off enough that John Jones can take control of the fight. Yeah, well, and uh, you talk about Reyes' lateral movement. He did such a good job of... Not letting John Jones just come in on him on his own terms. That he really made Jones work to get into where he wanted to get the fight to. But then, often enough, once Jones would finally come in, Reyes would sting him with that left hand. That's where he was landing a lot of those uppercuts. He was landing good punches from there that were just kind of shutting down Jones' offense from getting there. The thing that really surprised me is afterwards when talking about you know what he attributed the decision win to, Jones mentioned his wrestling, that he thought his wrestling really made a difference. And especially when I went back and watched it the second time, I'm like, man, you don't even really get a takedown until the fourth round. He went two of nine on takedown attempts for that. Reyes shut like takedown attempts down in a way that we haven't seen people really do to Jones, especially when he really commits to him. Because we saw him in Santiago Santos where there were a couple of situations where it looked like he was thinking about it, kind of reaching and seeing how he felt, and then deciding, no, nah, I don't really want to commit to it. But there were a few against Dominic Reyes where he really had decided, I'm going to take this guy down, and he couldn't. Yeah. And then even when he could... I don't think you get a lot of credit for those. I mean, maybe you wear the guy down a little bit, but you also maybe wear yourself down. He he would get him down, and then he he can't solidify a, a dominant position at all. He can't solidify any kind of position. He he can't land a single strike before Dominic Reyes is back on his feet. That's about as good as I've seen somebody do against John Jones wrestling wise, who wasn't named Daniel Cormier. Yeah, and I think you could kind of tell that Jones was a little bit rattled just from the way he was shooting for those takedowns. Like, you don't see him, and he got a couple of them, and he had a couple of good shots later in the fight. But like The one he the, got early in the fourth, you're right. Like That was definitely, like, this guy's hurting me, and that's why I'm going for a yeah, takedown. Yeah, but a couple of times he, when he dived in, it was just like, you don't see John Jones do that very much, just because he's typically so in control 
of of uh of what's happening out there uh i would love to like have a candid con- conversation with both corners from this fight just because it was the kind of fight where as a fight fan i would really like to know did anything really happen that surprised you or like did you have to make adjustments because you heard and like the greg jackson corner is obviously as experienced and as cerebral as it gets and you kind of heard them throughout this fight when we got to hear from the the corners, like giving John Jones things to think about and things to do when you were out there. Uh, but I would love to talk to those guys and frankly, Dominic Reyes's corner men and coaches, people that came up with the strategy to just kind of be like, did it go like you thought it would? Yeah. Cause it seemed well, like this was a fight where both guys did all the stuff that they were going to, that they thought they would be able to do. And it didn't really work for either of them or it did work for either of them, depending on how you want to look at it. Dominic Reyes said afterwards that during the first round, he felt like it was kind of a trip because he was going, wait a minute, this is going how I thought it was going to go. Like I'm putting it on him, I drop him, I'm all over this guy. And kind of being surprised to see what you expected out of this fight because you're going in there, you know, you got your game plan, but you're also kind of preparing for the worst. It was interesting to hear the difference in the corners because before that fifth round, Reyes's corner was telling him, this is awesome. Like, you're doing awesome. I love you. <laughs> I love you several times. Like, really proud of you. You're doing a great job. And basically, it seemed like they felt and they were maybe, if not overtly, at least subtly, giving him the mindset of, hey, you just got to survive five more rounds. Just last five more rounds. We think we already have enough money in the bank, basically, with the early rounds to win this decision. And then turns out you don't. Yeah. And Jones's corner... It was interesting to me, the things that I heard, like Greg Jackson had a pretty astute uh, description of what was going on in these rounds uh, later in the fight, maybe third or fourth round, where he's telling John Jones, you know what he's going to do? He's going to come out hard, like a, a bat out of hell, hell bent for leather, I think is what he said, in the first minute of these rounds, and then he's going to run. And, you know, I don't know, Dominic Reyes would tell you that he was running, but like he is going to definitely be on his horse a little bit and not stand there in front of you. But the first round, or the first minute of these rounds, up until the fifth at least, he was coming out pretty hard and and throwing some leather at John Jones. and But then they also seem to realize, like, okay, the thing he's doing about all your takedown attempts is you're shooting in and he's just grabbing your arms and lifting them up. He's just lifting you off of his hips, getting off of you, and feeling like, okay, I can battle this guy in the clinch and I'm not worried about it as long as I can keep him off my legs and keep him off the clinch. Yeah. And he was right. I mean, whenever Reyes was able to do that for the most part, he shut the wrestling down. Yeah. I think one of the things about John Jones that we lose sight of sometimes because he's been so good is that like, uh, as flawed as he is as a human being, obviously he's fucking tough as nails he is. and like he can take a punch. He can take a punch mentally, and physically. He's extremely tough. Dominic Reyes hit him a few times so hard that I think other people would have gone down and Jones just kind of walked through it. And I think you might be able to say the same thing about Dominic Reyes too, because Jones clipped him with a couple of punches. There's one left hook that I remember. uh, I can't remember what round it was in, but Jones just like clocked him with a shot that I think would have dropped a lot of people. But both these guys just kind of walked through each other's best shots, frankly, for 25 minutes. Yeah, I mean, people don't think about it because John Jones does not get hit cleanly that often, but he does have a hell of a chin. Yeah. and But just like the... The savvy and the mental toughness that he had in this fight, I think, was impressive. Just to be able to go out there, have a few bad rounds to start the fight, but just to be also have, like, the calm and the patience to be like, I'm going to get this guy. Yeah. Like, this guy can't keep this. I mean, I don't want to start playing Stockton rules here. <laughs> I but, was actually thinking that during the fight. But like, if this <laughs> fight had been booked for seven or eight rounds, John Jones finishes it. 
Like, he was ascendant, and Dominic Reyes was just trying to make it to the horn. At right, the end. right. And I think that's one of the reasons maybe that uh, we sh- that the decision might have turned out the way it did. But, uh, well, okay, let's let's do this. What do you do now? Do you book a rematch here? If cause I think if you're a fan, you definitely want to see the rematch here. If you're the UFC, do you book this rematch? If you're John Jones, do you book the rematch? Obviously, if you're Dominic Reyes... You're going to be fucking pissed if you don't get this rematch. Uh, how are you going to play me like that? I think was his quote after the decision was announced. But like, what happens now to our best ability to guess? I think you book the rematch. I think either you book the rematch or John Jones goes up to heavyweight. And the climate doesn't seem ideal for him to make the move to heavyweight just yet because you're still waiting to find out if we're going to do this steep A DC rubber match. Yeah. As long as we're waiting on that, you know, we got... Francis Ngannou in a number one contender fight with the biggie boy. You got some stuff still to settle at heavyweight. And John Jones versus the winner of Corey Anderson versus Jan Blachowicz. It's not exactly blowing anybody's hair back, as you might say. Yeah. So I think, do you book the rematch, I think, and you do better than you did this one. Because even people who skipped this one and then heard afterwards, like, hey, this was actually a hell of a fight. And maybe there was some controversy as to who won. You book it again, and I think you get a lot of those people who sat it out to come back and be like, okay, now that I know that it's a competitive matchup, and this is the kind of fight that defies the problem of just having people post the fight-ending finish to Twitter, you can't really do it with a good five-round fight that had 25 minutes of good action. I think there's a lot of reasons that it makes sense for everybody to book a rematch. Yeah, I have to say, as much lip service as we've given it the last several weeks, after watching the Tiago Santos fight and now watching the Dominic Reyes fight, I am a lot less confident in John Jones's prospects in the heavyweight division. Just because, well, one thing, I don't know how many guys up there are going to be able to do the thing that Dominic Reyes did, but without those physical advantages, it seems like John Jones is kind of a different dude. Like when he has to fight someone who is either bigger than him or has the same size and perhaps more power than he does, it just seems like it upsets his game a little bit. And so that, and I would still like to see it, but like, man, I kind of see why he keeps talking about how he's still got work to do at light heavyweight. Yeah. Well, I also though think a lot of those guys at heavyweight, if he survives the first round, that's true. Then he takes them apart. Ain't nobody going to be able to play the Dominic Reyes game for twenty five minutes. Maybe Miocic or or someone with uh, that kind of tremendous cardio, but nobody's going to be able to do it the way Dominic Reyes did. Uh, yeah, I, I think you would. I think. A rematch is probably the way to go here. I agree with that. I would also love to see it just because when we have seen John, not that I want to come off as a John Jones homer here, because I actually thought Dominic Reyes won this fight, but like when we have seen Jones in the past have a rematch, he tends to do better. Yeah. Because he is one of these guys, and the Greg Jackson camp is one of these camps that just like they are synthesizing all of that information and they are going through it. And he got he got to see a lot of Dominic Reyes in this fight. I wonder if he would have a better performance the second time around or if Reyes would be able to do different stuff. Like, I think you can make the case Dominic Reyes would have to do the same stuff to try to have success again against John Jones and whether or not Jones would be ready for it and able to counter it in different ways would be one of the things I would look forward to the most. Yeah, I think you definitely have to say that if anybody gets an advantage out of having already done this once, it's probably John Jones. We'll end here, though. Dominic Reyes to come in after 12 professional MMA fights, the last of which, as we said last week, was against Chris Weidman, a middleweight, 
and to have not really fought anybody that you would consider to be a really elite light heavyweight. Fucking hell of a performance, my man. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of unbelievable. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I know people talked a lot about Dominic Reyes as an elite athlete. Elite to, athlete. Due to his college football experience playing for the Stony Brook Seawolves. Yeah, go Seawolves. Uh, FCS power. FCS team. FCS power. Okay, FCF's powerhouse of a team. I guess the thing that I really have to give my are you fucking kidding me to is we all, we joked about that idea. Dominic Ray as elite athlete going to come in here. But clearly, the best base for mixed martial arts greatness is FCS football experience. There we go. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Ben. Like you didn't already know that. I already knew it, but I don't know about the people out there. Go in there, get... Get somebody from Weber State out here. Get them six months of sprawl training. Yeah, they destroy, hit some mitts. Destroy everyone. You don't want to see someone from the North Dakota State Bison up in here. Instant champs. No. Just, you, you couldn't handle it. Ben, Diego Sanchez and Michelle Pereira are fighting this weekend. Okay. You fucking kidding me? <laughs> That's this, it? That's... This seems like a made-up fight. This is like some shit you would do on the Pride game. Yeah. Kind of. It's absolutely some like, shit. Like, what if we do. have... Uh, Kid Yamamoto fight Tom the Big Cat Erickson. How would that go? Now we're going to have uh, this gymnast, Michelle Pereira, out there, backflipping, handspringing, double-flying, kicking, Diego Sanchez doing whatever he's going to do. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? I'm kind of hyped for this, actually. You'd hope what he's going to do is try to not get knocked out in the first round and then wrestle and ground and pound his way to a decision when Michelle Pereira gets attired in that thin... New Mexico air. You would hope. You would hope. Diego Sanchez fighting at home, by the way. He's going to be hyped for that. New Mexico. Think he's going to be up? I think he might uh, He might be kind of into this one. I think he might get up for it. Just my... That's analysis right there. That's my professional mixed martial arts analysis. Diego Sanchez will be hyped for this fight. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Jed, I'm just going to say it like this. I'm going to say it how I feel it. Can I do that? That's what we're here for. Are you comfortable with that? That's what we're here for, my brother. The unfettered discourse. That's why the discourse remains unfettered. I'm just going to tell it to you like this. Reyes, one, two, three. Jones, four, five. Yeah. 48, 47, Reyes. That's how I got it. Can I, now, can I tell you about my emotional journey? By all means. Before we go on. Wait, and so wait, you're saying your emotional journey happened just during the announcement. Yeah, while the they were okay. announcing the scores. Okay, all right. Because I agreed with you. I thought Reyes won the first three, and then Jones won the second two, or the last two, I'm sorry. But I've also watched an MMA fight before. Okay. I know how these yeah. things are scored. Uh-huh. And I'm si- even as I'm sitting there at home, especially after having seen the judging earlier in the night, I'm thinking, it's a good gamble. That a couple of these judges gave John Jones one of those first three rounds. These motherfuckers can't even agree on where to go to lunch, as we have said before. <laughs> the if you're Dominic Reyes and you are coasting, you're not that he was coasting; he was trying his hardest the whole time. But like, if you're banking, if you're Dominic Reyes and you're banking on the fact that you had all three of those rounds on all three judges' scorecards, nope, yeah, that's not a great bet. So I thought Dominic Reyes should have won, but 
as they started announcing the scores, I wasn't confident in it. And they said 48, 47 times two. And I was like, that seems reasonable. And then they said 49, 46. And I thought to myself, holy fucking shit, Dominic Reyes has done it. Dominic Reyes has defeated John Jones because that's the only way that I could imagine a 49, 46 scorecard. And then when they said, and still, whoo, <laughs> knock me over with a feather. I was uh, surprised. Emotional journey. That's all I'm saying. Emotional journey packed into a really short span of time. Now my too. brain was spinning out of control. Yeah. Well, okay. The Going back and watching it, I, I was thinking about something. John Jones kind of tried to reference this in the post-fight press conference, and he didn't quite say exactly the thing. But he was referencing how before this fight for ESPN, Dominic Cruz and Gilbert Melendez sat down and they rewatched his fight with Thiago Santos. And we're kind of analyzing what he does well and all that kind of stuff. And Dominic Cruz, I believe, was the one who made the point where he's like, you know, you're watching these rounds and you know, you know, you, you bring the knowledge into it that John Jones is so dominant and is always just dominating his opponents. That when somebody does even kind of well against him, there's a part of your brain that wants to give them that round. And then you go back and you watch some of it and you're like, you know, maybe some of what I was responding to was a, holy shit, this motherfucker's in this fight. Yeah. Not this guy is really taking it to John Jones. And for the record, I think definitely round one, Reyes is taking it to him. I still think he's taking it to him in round two. Round three gets a little closer. But it's like, I can understand the argument that some of it is just that you are surprised. Your brain is reacting to the surprise that not only is this guy not being blown away by John Jones, but he is going step for step with John Jones. And then that makes you go, he's really winning. He's really clearly winning. And because by the time you get, like, I remember the way I was feeling while watching it is by the time I got to round three, I was like, wait a minute, there's a chance Dominic Reyes has won all three of these rounds. And that in itself is surprising enough that your brain kind of latches onto it and then doesn't let it go. And so I'm not going to get mad about a 48-47 in either direction yeah. because you you could really make that case. The weird thing to me was to go back and look at the actual scorecards because... It's just fucking... It's grab bag scoring. It is. I'm glad that MMA has finally embraced grab bag scoring. <laughs> where we a, just pick some numbers out of a bag <laughs> and that's what the scores are. There's no two scorecards that are alike in this. One judge... Gives it gives Reyes, they all give Reyes round one, but then one judge will give uh, John Jones round two, and then Reyes round three. Another judge gives uh, Reyes one and two, and then Jones three, four, five, and then of course one who gives only the first round to Dominic Reyes, and then every other round to John Jones. And that's the part where you look at it and you go like the argument that people make for five judges, or you know like just adding more judges, and like okay. Would we really just get super fucking weird or would we actually just through averaging them out get closer to more reasonable scores? Yeah. I mean, I think that brings up the million dollar question here. Well, actually, I think there are a couple of million dollar questions. Uh, My opening question would be whether or not we think that MMA really has a judging problem Uh, because obviously these questionable decisions get a lot of the headlines. As we have said time and time again on the show, plane lands safely is not a news story. Right. So when a plane crashes, 
That's a much bigger news story. And obviously, when we see these kinds of decisions where we don't necessarily agree and almost all the media scorecards were the other way, we have a tendency to really kind of freak out about them and make them a big uh, a big thing. And people are out there creating forensic uh, psychological profiles of Joe Solis, the guy who scored at 49-46 for, for John Jones. Uh, but like, does MMA really have a scoring problem? Because I looked it up. of UFC fights end in decisions, which is far and away the most common result in a fight. Because if you break it down the other way, it's more or less evenly split between uh, knockouts and submissions, stoppages. So 44% of all UFC fights end in decisions. Don't most of them come out okay? Yeah. Well, I also think most of them are not that difficult. Right. So... If we're going to engage in a conversation about MMA judging and what can be done to fix it, I think the first question we got to ask is, can we make it better? Because I don't necessarily know that we should just shit can the system we got now in favor of stuff that may or may not work. Because it seems to me like as blunt a tool as it is, and I've said before, the 10-point must system to me seems like something of a blunt tool to try to diagnose a sport as nuanced and diverse as mixed martial arts, but like... It's working most of the time. It just so happens that when you get a really, really high-profile situation like this, where, again, in Texas, it seemed like there was a dude out there judging fights who maybe hadn't done it in a while and maybe wasn't doing a great job, but are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we try to, like, overhaul the system? Yeah, I mean, I agree that the system can work. My biggest complaint about the 10-point must system is that as it is most commonly used... It does not differentiate between winning around by a little and winning around by a lot. Yeah. Like, it's so hard to convince people to give out 10 eighths. And I think a lot of that, even, I mean, the new unified rules, which were not in effect for this fight in Texas, is LOL unified, but those encourage more 10 8 rounds. And even then, it's tough to get people to let go of that entrenched thinking where you gotta damn near decapitate somebody to get a 10 8 round. And, I think that that is the biggest weakness that it has. But also I think that it's reasonable when people are going, hey, this this was a close fight. I had it this way and the judges disagreed and one of the scorecards seemed really uh, difficult to imagine how he got there. And then when I do a little research into the guy, the barest amount of research into who turned in that score, it looks like, wait a minute. This is the guy you have out there for a title fight? Yeah. He hasn't judged a, a fight since 2017? And even then, like in 2017, he did like like a couple events. Like, we're out here contesting the UFC light heavyweight championship, goddammit. Why are we leaving? As I saw uh, Alex Davis, who has long been, uh, you know, MMA manager Alex Davis, long been fired up about the judging issue and demanding reforms to judging. And he made a fair point in this one where he's like, look, these are professionals out there with a lot of money and a lot of stuff on the line. And they are they have their futures in the hands of temp workers, Yeah, which is absolutely accurate. Yeah. And that, I think, when you look at that and you really stopped and, and step back and look at that system, that is, that's how you end up in a, in a situation where people lose faith in it. Yeah. And I think like, well, it always seems like one of those one scorecard is just out of whack. Because if you would come back with a 48-47... If it had been 48-47 across the board for John Jones, I think there would have been a lot of grumbling. Uh, but I don't think the furor would be quite this pitched yeah, yeah. like it is. My my follow-up question, though, is do you think we actually kind of like it when the, <laughs> do we get these decisions? 
Because it's almost like people have more fun with the decision than they had about the damn fight. Now, clearly, Dominic Reyes, if you think he won this fight, potentially life-altering bad beat for him to not win this decision. But, like, as the MMA social media sphere is concerned, it seems to me like we actually kind of love a bad decision. Like we, like I said, people are out here putting together a biography on Joe Solis. Just being like, hope no one's going to his house. That's what I'm thinking. Seems like we, like, part of us is like, this is part of it, man. This is part of the high. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe it is. I don't know. It also, though, every time we get into, like, a a close fight with an argument about judging at the end, we always end up having the same stupid arguments over and over. Like, the thing that I wrote about it before, the thing that bugs me is the people being like, well, no, you've got to really beat the champ. You can't beat the champ by a narrow decision. It's like, how is that supposed to work in practice? Like, if the judge is sitting there and he's watching these rounds and he's like, I think that guy won that round. But wait a minute. Uh, uh, I forgot. I got to factor in that he's the challenger and the other guy's a champion. So, no, he didn't. Really. Like, and it makes no sense. If the guy's the champion, if he's the best, it makes no sense to add to that advantage a scoring that's in his favor. Like, yeah. he, he shouldn't be just, like, up there on the top of the hill and everybody else has to fight extra hard to get up there. I mean, the judge should be able to turn in an accurate scorecard, even if he has no idea which guy's the champion and which guy's the challenger. Yeah. And, like, uh, psychologically, I think what happens more... Because you can't go back and, like, retroactively change your score. So like, right. you can't later be like, well, it's because it's a really close fight and it's for the title, I'm going to go back and change my round two score to be for John Jones. Like, you have to score them as they happen. I think what is far more frequent uh, in occurrence is that, like, in a close fight like that, if rounds one, two, and three are really close... I think you have a much better chance of a judge being like, all right, well, I'm going to give that one to Jones. Like, it was close. He did better. Round three, he did better. So I'm going to give him round three. And then if you fight like Dominic Reyes fought, where you basically have emptied the tank and you give up rounds four and five, you basically fought the exact classic style of fight to kind of get screwed on the decision. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. I think, we, you know what I think we should do is, is study it. I feel like we should try to study the judging question. Number one, find out if there's actually a problem. And number two, try to figure out what we can do about it. And again, just like with weight cutting, I kind of think that the UFC itself is in a really unique position to like try to figure it out. Because the UFC has a bunch of different platforms of fights, right? We've got exhibition matches on The Ultimate Fighter. We've got fights on uh, Dana White's Contender Series. we got Dana White uh, eating good food and traveling around trying to decide if he's going to jump off that cliff down there in Hawaii where he's hashtag looking for a fight. And then you got, you know, fight nights and you got pay-per-views. I bet if the UFC went to the Nevada State Athletic Commission and was like, hey, man, on these Dana White Contender Series fights, we're going to try out some different judging. What do you think? I bet that the Nevada State Athletic Commission would be like, okay. Yeah, whatever. Because it seems like the UFC can kind of get the athletic commissions to sort of do whatever it wants. As much belly aching as there is about it. Like, we've got a bunch of different places where we have fights. We've got exhibition fights. We've got Dana White Contender Series fights. Let's try some different shit, man. Cause, and especially about the Contender Series, if the judging doesn't work and one guy gets horribly screwed... Fortunately, you've got a benevolent uh, dictator who can come in and be like, we'll give that guy a contract anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, there we go. I think using, like, and if you want to justify the continued existence of things like the Ultimate Fighter or Dana White's Contender Series, telling me that it is a living laboratory in which we study the concept of MMA judging, 
then you kind of get me on board. Yeah. We're going to have seven judges. Two of them are going to be in different cities watching on a monitor. One of them is only going to score takedowns. <laughs> One of them is going to score the fight as a whole. And then three of them are going to watch a different fight and score that one. Also, for every fight, we get one judge just off the street 15 minutes before the fight starts. Just pull them out of the crowd. Yeah. It's Minimal fun. explanation of what this sport even is. The judge from the crowd has scored one guy a pussy. <laughs> Didn't even kick the other guy in the nuts. <laughs> Zero points. That's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben Valentina Shevchenko pretty much ran through Caitlin Chu Chu Chukagian about exactly like we thought she would. Third round, TKO, elbows and punches, minute and three seconds into the final round. That would be uh, Valentina Shevchenko's third successful women's flyweight championship title defense. She does the dance. She's got a gun tattooed on her. She is stylistically a marvel. Technically perfect. Going to come out here and, uh, what, a reverse wheel kick somebody right in her damn face. Right in the damn face. And I don't know how, uh, I don't know if it's must-see TV, I gotta say. Like, Valentina Shevchenko was amazing. She's out there just trucking motherfuckers. Yeah. And yet, I don't know, man. There's something a little bit lackluster about it to me. And I think it's that she's so much goddamn better than everyone else. Okay, how about if you didn't really know that if you... If you went in there and you're like, well, okay, this is the champion versus the challenger. I assume the challenger must have really uh, worked her way up here. And this is the fight that had to happen for the division. And then, wow, she's just way better than... And she was. You're asking me if I was a filthy casual? Yes. And I tuned into two people fighting in a warehouse? Wouldn't you come away from this being like, Valentina Shevchenko is the motherfucking truth? Yes, I would. And none of what I just said is Valentina Shevchenko's fault, obviously. It's not her fault that no one is even as close to as good as her. Especially because she goes out there, she's technically flawless, she whips Caitlin Chukagian's butt, and then gets on the mic and does her interview in like six different languages. She's talking to the people of Houston in Spanish or something. <laughs> I, the thing that I came away from this fight, do you remember, wasn't it when, uh, was it when she was going to fight Jessica I or Yuena and Jacek? And, and uh, was it Valentina Shevchenko where people were accusing her of speeding up the film yes. while she's hitting the bag? I think so. Because when she was hitting Caitlin Chukagan with some of these like punch and then like leg kick combos... It looked sped up, except that everything else, everybody else, the ref and Caitlin Chukagian were moving at normal speed. And Valentina Shevchenko looked like she was on sped up film. And to be just so much technically better, to be so much physically and athletically better than she was, like, it was super impressive to be able to just see what the gap is between Valentina Shevchenko and whoever else we could just find in that division who's next. Yeah. But the thing is... I don't know what you're supposed to do with her. That's right. Because if you want to talk about, oh, let's do another fight with Amanda Nunes. Let's do a, like a super fight kind of thing. You know, Amanda won two of those fights already. Like, if you you can't even call it a trilogy or like a, a rubber match or anything if you do a third one now. Because what if Valentina Shevchenko wins? Then it's still 2-1. 
now we're in like a best of five series, essentially. Yeah. I, I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. I, that. It's hard for me to get too excited about it. But then when I look at it, it's like, okay, the alternative is that Valentina Shevchenko is just going to keep on murking motherfuckers who are nowhere near as good as her. And it's just going to be like, okay, it's your turn. Yeah. It's your turn to go up there and, and get beat up by Valentina Shevchenko now. I don't know. I can see how like a lot of people wouldn't be into that. I also think maybe it's not the worst thing. Remember when we were like, okay, the UFC decided that it wants to have a flyweight division and it seemed like it was positioning Valentina Shevchenko for success when it matched up against Priscilla Cachuera. It was yeah. like, okay, here's somebody she's going to go in there and just beat the brakes off of and look really good doing it and then that'll help propel her. And that's exactly what happened. But if you match her up against these other people who... You know, even if we don't look at them and be like, I think they stand a very good chance of beating Valentina Shevchenko. Hey, they won their fights. They climbed up the rankings. They're the people you got. And if they're the people who end up fighting her and she just turns out to be way better than them, isn't that just how it goes? Yeah, here are the uh, the three people that she mentioned specifically at the post-fight press conference that she could fight. And these are the top three ranked women's flyweight contenders that Valentina Shevchenko has not up to this point destroyed. Uh, they are Jojo Calderwood, the Whispering Warrior. You got uh, Jennifer Maya, and you got uh, Roxanne Modafferi. So I guess the choice is this. Clearly, as hardcore fans, we're going to look at those three fights and say those were all mismatches in favor of Valentina Shevchenko. But maybe you were correct, Ben, in saying if what you want to do is low-key make Valentina Shevchenko into kind of like a crossover star simply by like putting her on cards where John Jones is at and running her out there against someone that she's just going to destroy and that Valentina Shevchenko is going to look good doing it. She's going to speak six languages. She's going to seem like a delightful human. She's going to have a sister who also fights. She's going to have like she's a lifelong possibly a spy, a lifelong relationship with her coach uh who at one point uh pulled out on some uh, ruffians during a, a robbery and got in a goddamn firefight and got shot in the stomach. And Valentina Shevchenko took him in the, to the hospital in a taxi. She's got everything, man. She's, like I said, the perfect mixed martial arts fighter. Both technically in the cage and to sell stories to outside uh, media about. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe you just have her beat up all three of these poor people. Well, Hardcore fans probably not going to think it's uh, that awesome when Valentina Shevchenko is piecing up Roxanne Modafferi, but okay, yeah, maybe that, we're not a concern not anymore. But, I mean, isn't that one of the complaints people have had about women's MMA in the past? Is like, oh, you know, they don't have knockout power and you don't see as many finishes and, you know, you're just going to tune in to see a five-round decision if, if it's a title fight. And so, if, and if the flip side is Valentina Shevchenko is just going to run through people but we're not intentionally choosing people because they seem so run-throughable. It's not like we're going out and looking for easy fights. We're looking for the best contenders there are in the division. And it just so happens that they are not up to the challenge. Yeah. Then, I don't know, I, it's hard to really complain about that too much. And I think a lot of people maybe would get a kick out of seeing Valentina Shevchenko beat the shit out of somebody. Yeah. Just show up once every, you know, four or five months. We'll kick somebody in the damn head. I mean, hey, it's what I used to like about Matt Hughes. Let's do the same thing with Valentina Shevchenko. I think that the UFC... She seems way nicer as a person. She seems like a much better person. The UFC PI should have an entire division just dedicated to finding people to fight Valentina Shevchenko. I'm talking about talent scouts, high-level coaches, clone some people, as far as I'm concerned. Take 
uh, some DNA from a heavyweight, take some DNA from a flyweight, make somebody to fight Valentina Shevchenko. This seems uh, just ethically like a minefield that you're wandering God into. To find someone <laughs> to fight Valentina Shevchenko. Yeah. Do you think you'll like living in the dystopia where you have created a, a monster who as cannot be stopped? As long as Valentina Shevchenko's on TV beating up a clone every four months, yeah, I'm fine with it. Well, Hell think, with the environment. I think you you may have overreacted. I'll say that. <laughs> it's the opiate of the masses. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, I'm just saying, people seem to really like those flying knees that Derek Lewis was throwing against the bricklayer, Alir Latifi. Yeah. And I will fully admit to you that they were fun. It's fun to watch Derek Lewis throw a flying knee. Also... He seemed to be flying right into those double underhooks an awful lot. <laughs> so I guess I'm just saying they were fun, but maybe they're also the reason he almost lost. Wow. Just saying. Just saying. Wonder what uh wonder what the after party at Little Woodrow's was like. God, I can't stop wondering. As soon as I found out the after party was at Little Woodrow's, I wanted to get an Uber, head down there. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if I'd be getting there about now. The, do you think the servers at Little Woodrow's were getting like text messages from their friends being like, oh shit. You're not working tonight, are you? Derek Lewis is coming down there with a whole bunch of people looking to buy him five shots and he's not buying them shit. It seemed like everybody was going to go to Little Woodrow's. Numerous fighters shouted out the after party at Little Woodrow's. I was told later there are many Little Woodrow's locations yeah, around the area. It's a chain, which I found you know, somewhat kind of let the air out of my balloon a little bit it did though remind me of the golden days of like 2005 yes. mma where like every fighter would get on the mic and tell you about his after party i went to a couple ufc after parties where i was like literally the only one there <laughs> i went to an after party once that bj penn was supposed to show up at but he got beat up by george st pierre so he didn't go one time i went to a ufc after party that was just me and my friends and vanilla ice and that's why i have that picture of me with vanilla ice Ooh, that's rad that's pretty right. My just saying stuff, Chad. Oh, you haven't even done your just saying stuff no. yet. My apologies. I'm not out here trying to suck up all the air in the room. Yes, you are. Uh, Kamara Usman was down there in Houston. And as you might imagine, talking to reporters, he ends up on the topic of your guy, Jorge Masvidal. Uh -huh. Here's what he had to say. It's kind of funny to me to watch what he's become. It's the same guy, the same journeyman. But now he's become everything that he said he wouldn't. Everything he fought against, being the cliche, being this and that, he's exactly that guy right now. I'm just saying, even if you were to accept the premise that Kamaru Usman is working from here, so you're telling me the runaway popularity of Jorge Masvidal, where when he does like public meet and greets, there's just lines out the goddamn door, people cheering their asses off when they see him on the screen making a bunch of money, ending up in big fights. UFC creates a damn special belt, and he's walking around with it. And you're saying that's the guy he said he never would be? I guess I'm just saying if that's the case, then he was wrong, because that's clearly a good guy to be, because it's working really, really well. So if he actually had said that he never wanted to be that guy, that would have been dumb, and he would have been right to go back on it. I'm confused now. The guy that he has become, uh -huh. that's a good guy to be. Yeah, okay. It's working. Oh, uh, yeah. Just saying. Just saying. Could the guy that he has become fight Valentina Shevchenko? Look, man, you're just going to have to deal with this Valentina Shevchenko situation for what it is and not the weirdo <laughs> Jurassic Park world. Island you of like. Dr. Moreau. <laughs> I see nothing that could go wrong. 
That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back on Wednesday for the Patreon live chat, as well as I believe we're going to record a movie club episode about Thunder Road. Thunder Road. If you're not currently a member of the co-main event podcast, Patreon, cruise on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and become a patron of the show. Support the podcast. one of the three handy levels that we provide for your patronage. That's right. Keeps the discourse unfettered. Keeps us in business. And then Friday, of course, we'll be back for the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour. One week from today, we'll be breaking down all the stuff that happens at UFC New Mexico. That'll be President's Day. Oh, boy. So, you know, I like to do my presidential uh, trivia. You do. You on do the President's like Day shows. I recall that. I really As for look right now, to that though, all year. we are done. We are through. We are out. So, when the UFC gets lab trying to create these contenders uh-huh. about yeah. it's a Dr. Frankenstein type situation do you, do you just limit yourself to fighter DNA can you sprinkle a little like snow leopard in there yeah let's do it I mean it depends on how far down the road we get if she starts eating conventionally cloned humans then maybe we start mixing it some stingray DNA does it alleviate some of our concerns like if she's We don't care if a clone gets CTE. It's totally yeah. fine. No, it's going to be like in the prestige. It's one fight and we drown them in a tank. I'm still unclear on whether it was always a clone getting drowned in the tank or whether it was something else. Back to this. Never stop. Can the clone watch tape of 2020 John Jones? Or does the clone only have the